You are about to listen in on an incredible panel discussion that took place on Tuesday, March 21st, 2023 in Park Slope, Brooklyn at Littlefield NYC when we were holding an endometriosis fundraiser and exclusive Below the Belt documentary screening. The room was filled with people with endometriosis, loved ones of people with endometriosis, providers, and just people in the community who wanted to learn and support this cause and to help raise awareness. So this was an extremely informative and educational chat. As most of you may already know, my name is Dr. Melanie Carminati. I am the owner of Inspira PT and Pilates in Park Slope, Brooklyn. We do pelvic floor physical therapy and other holistic uh, treatments at our office. And we see many people with endometriosis. That's why I decided to organize this event. It's a humbling experience as a provider, as a healthcare professional, working with people on their journey who have endometriosis. You'll also hear Dr. Masahidi Dikanayama, MD. He's an endometriosis surgeon. Dr. Murray Orbuck, MD, gastroenterologist. Dr. Michael L. Lewis, endometriosis surgeon at New York Presbyterian Methodist here in Park Slope, Brooklyn. We had Dr. Jason Seiferman, pain physiatrist of Manhattan Pain Medicine, and Nequeva Houghton, patient advocate and a person with endometriosis. Share as much information within the community so that everyone becomes aware of this very challenging disease and the ways that they can find the care that they need. Enjoy. Dr. Orbuck, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. So I wanted to start off with asking you about what are the kinds of gastrointestinal symptoms that patients with endometriosis present with? You know, it, it, they are as varied as the way endometriosis presents. Um, range from a profoundly disordered bowel habit, such as constipation or obstipation or seeming intestinal obstruction. Other individuals will present with irritable bowel syndrome-like symptoms of refractory or intermittently refractory diarrhea, abdominal pain, bloating, gas, severe dyskesia, very tremendous amount of pain when they move their bowels. It really runs the gamut uh, because of the profoundly inflammatory nature of, of endometriosis. So what ends up happening is because of that, uh, you will have uh, symptoms that will mimic irritable bowel syndrome. And very often, uh, women who have endometriosis may go many, many years uh, being told that all they have is endometriosis, all they have is irritable bowel syndrome, and no one really kind of hears out what else is going on. Uh, as I mentioned before, some some women, because of the nature of where the endometriosis is implanted, may end up having uh, uh, symptoms of profound obstipation to the point where they, they are brought to the emergency room several times a year for the incredibly uh, 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 slow GI transit time, resulting in misdiagnosis of uh, IBS-C uh, or simply slow colonic motility. And very often that might represent uh, rather extensive involvement of the deep pelvis with endometriosis, tethering the, the, the rectum and really impairing the normal movement of the anorectum uh, during active defecation. Thank you, Dr. Roebuck. Can you lead us into some of the treatments for these specific symptoms related to endometriosis? 
Sure. So uh, very often uh, in, individuals with endometriosis may have uh, increased gas and bloating and uh, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Again, this is probably a consequence of the underlying uh, inflammatory state that, that accompanies endometriosis that may affect the normal motility of the small intestine. And so what you find are individuals with terrible gas, bloating, and diarrhea, which are for, for all the world, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth on its own. Very often uh, sending people who have these symptoms for a lactose hydrogen breath test uh, will help differentiate those with treatable uh, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth and treatment with that, with either either rifaximin alone or rifaximin with, with neomycin or amoxicillin clavulinate, there are a couple of different regimens, will at least temporarily uh, decrease those symptoms. Uh, with uh, women who have severe constipation uh, to the point of obstipation and 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 seemingly uh, pseudo impact or, or severe impaction, that is a little bit more difficult because what ends up happening is 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 the the normal action of the anal rectum and the pelvic floor are disordered because of the extraordinary amount of uh, tethering that might happen from fibrosis from simply the presence of endometriosis in the in the uh, deep pelvis. And those individuals may help, may be helped with uh, stool softeners, with uh, 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 enemas, with uh, uh, laxatives, but often they need to be identified as to what's going on. So doing anorectal manometry and at times uh, 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 MR defecographies will fully characterize the dysfunction. And in those individuals, uh, particularly with manometry, uh, you can actually find telltale signs of uh, endometriosis in the vicinity uh, because of the diminished compliance of the rectum. It will not expand as it's supposed to when the balloon is extended uh, inside the rectum and, and gives you a sense that there may be something going on in the immediate vicinity that prevents the rectum from, from behaving in the normal fashion. If you remember, if you go from front to from the anterior abdominal wall to the sacrum, uh, you first encounter the the uh, urinary bladder. Behind it is the uterus and the ovaries. Behind it will be the sigmoid and the rectum, and they all exit roughly within a few centimeters of each other. But each of those structures will move independently of each other. When you have endometriosis and either implantation of endometriosis on these particular vis you know hollow viscuses or, or organs, or you have scar tissue that that arises from repeated uh, from, from endometriosis uh, with cycles that are never interrupted, uh, you'll have scar tissue, scar tissues that will impair its normal movement. And you can actually see that the, the, the structures are simply locked either to each other or to the adjacent structures or to the pelvic sidewall and will not move. And consequently, you cannot, you could, you could try to force things out as best as you can and very little will happen. So these, these individuals need to be particularly identified. Uh, the impairment of their life uh, is, is sometimes quite profound. And so it should enter the mind of any gastroenterologist with uh, a woman who has uh, repeated episodes of, of uh, fecal impaction, of obstipation, of abdominal distension, 
of dysmenorrhea, of dyspareunia, all these things married together should raise uh, suspicion for any gynecologist that, gynecologist that this may be, and gastroenterologist that this may be endometriosis that they're dealing with, rather than uh, uh, providing temporizing relief that may or may not work. And if they if it does work, will work for a very brief period of time. Great. Thank you so much. That was really informative, especially the physiology that you mentioned. That was insightful and educational for me. So thank you. Um, Dr. Kaneyama, I wanted to have you take us through the different stages of endometriosis. And uh, if you could touch on the different parts where endometriosis can adhere. Um, yeah, this is Dr. Kaneyama. Thank you so much for the invitation tonight. And uh, I'm sorry, English is not my native language, so I have a thick Japanese accent. <laughs> my apology. <laughs> oh, but happy, happy endometriosis awareness month. And uh, um, it is such an exciting time to talk about endometriosis. Um, so endometriosis has four different stages. I'm sure everybody knows this, so I don't even need to tell you this. And that stage one, stage two, uh, stage one is called uh, minimum endometriosis. And stage two is called mild endometriosis. <clears throat> Excuse me. And stage three is uh, moderate endometriosis. And stage four is a uh, severe endometriosis. And there's a, a scoring system. This staging is going to be decided by um, extent of endometriosis. And if there's any adhesion or not, and if there's any uh, depth of how deep each endometriosis is going to be embedding inside. And also there is any uh, ovarian endometriosis, size of ovarian chocolate cyst, and how much scar tissue uh, endometriosis is developing inside your body. So <clears throat> I am, so this staging is basically uh, only decided at the time of laparoscopy. So you cannot really decide any staging uh, before you do surgery. So doctor can put the camera inside, and doctor will going to check all over your body, and he will count number of endometriosis, how widespread endometriosis, how deep endometriosis goes inside, and how big it is involved in your ovary and uh, scar tissue. So these are the... Uh, uh, kind of a nutshell <laughs> of the staging of endometriosis. Yeah, if I, if I might uh, actually just add a point to, to that, uh, this is Dr. Orbach, the gastroenterologist. The, uh, very often, uh, because it is unclear what's going on, uh, imaging may be undertaken to try to figure out what, 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 what in hell is going on so seriously. Using uh, an MR, uh, MR of the pelvis, is is really rarely uh, beneficial in uh, in delineating the amount of disease. It's probably effective in half the time. Uh, so, uh, as 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 my colleague mentioned, uh, it's really at laparoscopy that you can really appreciate the full extent of what's going on. MR very often will not give you a good sense of uh, what's going on. And ultrasound, which the insurance companies seem to be fixated on uh, for reasons that r remain a mystery will likely tell you nothing unless there's an endometrioma of the ovaries. Any more extensive disease, you'll, 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 be, you'll be tricked in, in assuming there's nothing. 
Thank you, Dr. Orbach and Dr. Kaneyama. Thank you. So, um, Dr. Lewis, I know you have a unique um, experience working with OBGYN residents, and in uh, Below the Belt, they mentioned the need for enhanced training, for awareness. Where, where do you find the residents are at right now in terms of their awareness? Okay, so uh, good evening, everyone. The resident, residency training takes four years. It's four years of obstetrics and gynecology. So that's divided right away between the obstetrics, which is those two years mostly for the residents, and then terms of gynecology. Then they have other subspecialties that they rotate in, urogynecology, REI, which is uh, reproductive infertility and oncology. So, and I was, I was giving a talk on, on Sunday morning about, you know, our, how our residents are prepared to go out to perform surgical excision. And it's, it's very low, it's very minimal. And that's why most, you know, at the end of their four years of training, they may do about 26 weeks of training, even with me. And it's usually only those third or fourth year residents that get some of the advanced training. Uh, that's why there is fellowship training. Uh, fellowship training after surgery to, you know, now it's either one to two additional years for a fellowship of minimally invasive surgery. I mean, also our GUN oncologists are doing a lot of uh, endometriosis treatment now and excisional surgery as well, but it's, it, it needs more. Um, I think part of the discussion also is, you know, training and it's been discussed with uh, the um, ACOG who governs in terms of the curriculum help with with endometriosis training is we may change residency training to see either an additional fifth year or even split residencies completely so that after their first year, maybe they go on to doing four years specifically of GYN surgery. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's definitely something that needs more improvement. And, you know, it's a multidisciplinary approach. It's not also just the GYN doctors that are doing this. You know, I work very closely with general surgeons, urologists, colorectal surgeons, uh, cardiothoracic surgeons, if they see something during an operation where they're doing something remotely different or working in different parts of the body, you know, I'm, I'm like the endo guy in their hospital. I'm always telling them, look in the pelvis, um, and, and we work as a team. And so it's not just about the gynecology training. It's about every other surgical subspecialty who's got to learn about identification and, uh, and, and early treatment. Thank you. I wanted to ask about sur surgical recommendations for people who are perimenopausal or menopausal, and does that change? I mean, before we used to always say, oh, if you're finished childbearing and you have endometriosis or you have adenomyosis, just do hysterectomy. And that's, that's not the case. I mean, again, it's trying to identify, you know, if they have, in terms of adenomyosis, which was described in here in terms of the involvement of the endometriosis in the muscle of the uterus, you can have both focal, so in a minute portion of it, or versus diffuse. So that does change. But essentially, you have to ensure that you've excised all of the endometriotic lesions that are in the pelvis. And mostly now, if we're dealing with, say, someone who's 45 and they have not gone into menopause, and you do a hysterectomy, and you leave implants everywhere, and they still have estrogen to stimulate those lesions, you haven't really done anything. So, but it, it really, it, there's a lot, every single patient is different, and it depends on how long they've also had the endometriosis. Again, the amount of scarring that may have already occurred, the involvement of the nerves. I mean, it's very difficult, but like I said, everyone is different. We 
do that multidisciplinary approach besides the other surgeons, the physical therapy, the diets, everything is involved to help with the patients. Great. Thank you so much. So, um, Dr. Seferman, I wanted to have you chat with us about some of the musculoskeletal-related treatments that you might do for patients who have endometriosis. I know we share a few patients, and sometimes, as um, Dr. Lewis also spoke about, there's multiple regions involved. So hip pain is really common. You could have TFL spasm. You could have iliopsoas spasming, iliacus. And so being able to address the other musculoskeletal side of the pain is really important. So can you touch on that? Yeah. Hi. This is a big topic, and it's it's really difficult to sort of approach unless you look at each patient and try and figure out exactly, like, what all's going on. Because then you can start to pick apart little pieces and say, okay, I know what this is. We can work on that. I know what this is. We can work on that. Endo is special because kind of like migraine, and of course there's a high correlation of endo with migraine, and kind of like hypermobility syndromes where there's a high correlation with migraine and endometriosis, they can sensitize a lot of other tissues. So I have a number of endo patients who have other tissues in their body that are estrogen sensitive. And so when they're flaring, their endo is flaring, other things are also flaring. And so then we have to figure out what of this is endo and what of this is something else that's just estrogen sensitive that is actually musculoskeletal primary and we can treat that so that that tissue isn't so easily sensitized. So when there's a setting of, and you see how easily I can just blow this up and we could like go off on all these tangents forever. So... My, my role is really to help identify what's causing pain, where that pain's happening, why that pain's happening, and then figure out what we can do for each of those little pains. So when there's an endoflare and everything hurts, it's really difficult. My, my role in that job is to try and get things as comfortable as possible, and we think globally. I think things like sympathetic blocks to calm down all of the viscera. I'll think things like ketamine or lidocaine infusions just to like knock the flames down a little bit so we can kind of see more clearly what is actually on fire and then go after those things. Uh, medications, as you know, most likely, and you saw, I mean, there's limited benefit. And sometimes, sometimes we'll get lucky and something will work for somebody, but you know, it, it's tough. So one thing is sort of controlling the global experience of discomfort. The other is identifying actual structural pieces that we can go in and either rehab or inject or treat or Botox or something to go after. So like you mentioned the psoas. The psoas is a great target because it's so challenging. So let's say there's endo posteriorly. Let's say it's on the lumbar plexus or say it's on the psoas, right? The psoas will react. If there's any abdominal pain, the psoas will generally react. If there's any hip joint pain, the psoas will react. If the brain thinks that there's hip pain because there's endo on the lumbar plexus going to the hip and the brain also thinks there's hip pain, then the psoas is going to react, right? So like, which of these is it? That, that I'm sorry, that's the journey of, of what we go through with patients to try and tease all of these things apart. So separately, of course, if there's hip hypermobility, if there's labral tears, which many, many people have, and they're just asymptomatic, and those are contributing to the overall issue of pain, yes, we'll treat that, we'll identify that. There's a lot of regenerative medicine involved in that. If there's also hernias, like inguinal hernias, femoral hernias, obturator hernias, you guys encounter this all the time, is it just sensitized because of the endo? Is there endo in the inguinal canal, and that's part of the issue? Well, we'll do diagnostic blocks. So if we block the inguinal canal and the pain goes away, we know there's something in the inguinal canal, then we have to figure out, is it hernia or is it endo? So... I'm sorry, I'm scratching the surface and opening this can of worms, but say Yes, yes, no, it is complex. So um, 
I was just at the Endofound Patient Symposium this weekend, which was two full days, plus they're having multiple more days of lectures and presentations. So obviously we can only scratch the surface tonight, but we're trying to just highlight some important parts. Um, I know you mentioned, and from working with you, um, for me as a pelvic floor physical therapist, when a patient comes in, if they have endometriosis, if they're in a pain flare, or if they have any kind of pain or persistent pain syndrome, I will always try to calm their nervous system first with craniosacral therapy, visceral manipulation, some vagus nerve manual therapy, because trying to work directly on a muscle that's spasming or just their central nervous system is upregulated in sympathetic overdrive isn't very effective. So being able to address the central nervous system first and then allow the body to relax is more effective to do first before you get to the specific muscles. So um, for pelvic floor physical therapy as well, especially at Inspira, we're looking at everyone holistically. So we're looking at diaphragm, movement diaphragm excursion, the diaphragm and the pelvic floor actually move or in a healthy um, individual should be following the same rhythm. There should be some kind of similar excursion going on. So we're looking at that. And then for pelvic floor specific muscles, there's a lot you can get externally, but then being able to assess the muscles layer by layer, there's multiple layers of your pelvic floor, being able to pinpoint specific muscles, seeing if there's specific muscles that are in spasm. Um, it's, it's complex and it takes time, um, but being able to address uh, the central nervous system first is really important. So I wanted to have you just talk a little bit more about what else uh, you refer to for those patients who are in those pain flares and, and in those high pain states. Thank you for bringing up the sympathetic nervous system because that's often where we will have to start. So, so much of our sanity is limited by our fight or flight response, <laughs> right? So that's one of those things that you can just see it. You can feel it from somebody. And that's usually the first thing I'll go after too, because like, how do we get you to a sane place? Because you, you just can't live like that, right? Like, so of course, going after the pain is, is essential, but like recognizing that as part of the pain also helps me understand what's going on with the pain. So, and all of this fits in the bigger history too, because, you know, if, if they're feeling cold and clammy at times, if they're constipated, if they're having abnormal sweats, if they're having lots of nausea, vomiting, like this is all autonomic nervous system. I don't know if you know, there's, there's the somatic nervous system, which is what we think about when we think of nerves. Like you touch, you feel your skin, you move your knee, that's all somatic nerves. The autonomic nervous system has the parasympathetic, which is your rest and digest, and the sympathetic, which is your fight or flight response. And those two are sort of in balance with each other. All of the internal organs, the pain in those organs are sensed through the sympathetic nervous system. So anytime there's pain in the sympathetic distribution, it goes through that pathway and it goes to the brain and it says, you know, this building's on fire, get out. But you, you, you can't. And you may or may not know this, PTSD follows the exact same pathways. So anyone who has prior trauma, they get this pain on top of it, it just reignites that, that pathway. So recognizing this is essential. And there are certain medications we'll use just to downregulate this. Things like clonidine, tizanidine, propranolol, just help downregulate this part of the nervous system. Sometimes I'll do specific blocks for this just to regionally reduce pain. 
So if let, let's look at adenomyosis just in isolation. Let's say there was endometriosis excision surgery, all went well, but there's still uterine pain. We can do superior epigastric plexus block, which will block the nerves that go to uterine numb out the uterus. If that takes that pain away, then we sort of isolated the distribution of that pain. And at the same time, if that's what's driving the sympathetic nervous system, they're just cool as a cucumber. And it's great because they're just, it's wonderful. It's the best thing to knock out somebody's sympathetic tone when that's driving their pain. (laughs) So yeah, that's part of it. Uh, Separately, we may go after stellate ganglion blocks, which doesn't affect pelvic pain at all, but it's that pathway that takes it to the brain. And sometimes we'll interrupt it that way. So separately from this, I want to speak on physical modalities too, because that's an essential part of this, because those are things that you can do on your own, things you don't need me to help you with. Uh, and, and of course, Melanie, you can speak to this too, but aerobic exercise, when you're able, exhaustive aerobic exercise, just gets all that adrenaline out of your system, which is what drives the sympathetic response. Uh, sometimes people will do cold showers or alternating hot and cold showers to train the nervous system, because it's just about that that regulation and it's not necessarily fun but can be helpful this is this is the physical medicine in physical medicine and rehabilitation uh, so there are lots of options out there thank you so much i want to just add one of the other things that we commonly will teach our patients especially after we do vagal uh, vagus nerve manual therapy are vagal toning exercises so some of you may already be familiar with the fact that humming and, and singing actually stimulates the vagus nerve And so um, some of the exercises that we teach are somewhat like vocal warm-ups, except you're not focused on how you sound. You're focused on, yeah, you're supposed to be focused on how you feel and what it feels like and the sensation. So that's a, a thing I wanted to add. So thank you so much. I wanted to have you just share, because you are a person with endometriosis, if you could just share your experience and any of the barriers that you faced in in finding proper care. Thank you. Thank you for having me here today, Dr. Melanie. And hello, everyone. I'm so glad to be with you all. I don't think finding care was as much of a struggle as it was to get care. So I personally, so I was diagnosed with endometriosis at 19 years old when I had a laparotomy surgery. And the doctor obviously, you know, like our doctor said here, he didn't know it was endometriosis until he got in there. And just for context, I'm now 37. So he went in, he says, you know, your uterus was kind of consumed. I got everything I could, couldn't save the other ovary. You probably won't have kids. You have something called endometriosis and we don't know much about it. And so that was like back in 2005-ish, four or five. And so I did really well for the following years. You know, I didn't have as much pain. I also did have kids, unlike he said. (laughs) So it was awesome, but I definitely wasn't ready. (laughs) They came back to back. We have my husband and I, he's here tonight. We have three kids. And since I say that, shout out to all of you who are supporting someone with endometriosis. You guys are so special. All right. So, you know, I end up having children and then, you know, endometriosis definitely came back very viciously and I had switched doctors by this time. And so, and I love my doctor, really do. I don't take anything away from the doctors, even if they're not aware, you know, Um, but he's not a specialist in endometriosis. And so me saying that I'm in pain is just like, 
pop some Motrin. Oh no, you have to do it early before your cycle starts so that, and I'm like, but I'm tired and it's draining me. And, you know, and just, you know, all the experiences that I've had, everything you heard in the video, probably 90% of the things I've dealt with as well, as I know some of you have. So I think getting the care and just being able to advocate for yourself and fighting the thin line of saying, okay, I'm just going to deal with the pain or no, I'm going to keep harassing you until you do something about it. And I didn't know that endometriosis specialist actually existed. So it wasn't like I could be like, well, let me call, you know, Dr. Sechkin in New York and say, you know, whatever. I didn't know that that was a thing. I thought endometriosis was something that your doctor just had to learn about, which my doctor did. So um, fast forward to 2019, I was fed up with endometriosis and the pain of periods and, you know, because I'm now in pain every day in and outside of periods, right? So my doctor, same guy, he's like, you know, I'll give you the surgery because I'm like, please take my uterus out. I have all these kids you guys said I wouldn't have and <laughs> I'm in pain every day. Like, let's just get rid of it. You know, I was, I don't know, maybe 33, so about four years, 33 at the time. I'm like, I can't live like this. The quality of life just wasn't there. It was like, what life? I missed out on so many things, so many of my children's events, so many, you know, concerts, comedy shows, just not being able to live. And so he took it out and he actually apologized to me after surgery. And I thought that was so big of him. He, um, I don't, not from a place that he did anything wrong because he can't help what he doesn't really know, right? But he said he had to call in a general surgeon. The endometriosis had spread to my bladder and to my intestines. And, you know, he's like, I really see now why you're in so much pain. So I think it wasn't finding care. I think it was getting the care. And so I would encourage you all to just really advocate for yourself. Thank you so much for that. Since you've traveled the path, do you have any words of encouragement to anyone here who is a person with endometriosis? Absolutely. Um, you know, put yourself first, right? I know we all have goals. And like me sitting up here as a mom and maybe some people out here wanting to be a mother or, you know, wanting to bear children naturally one day. I know that this is a difficult journey for you. But I want you to know that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. So you have to put yourself first because without you, there are no future children, right? Without you, there is, you can't make those events that you wanted to make. You can't, you know, reach those goals. You have to take care of yourself first. And sometimes that means you're going to have to get that ex excision surgery. That means you may have to get a hysterectomy. That means the path of your life may change. But the life that you will live after you put yourself first is one of quality. And I think that you should really just know that there is light at the end of the tunnel Life does not have to be like this. You just have to continue to advocate for yourself. Put yourself first. Think of the positive things. You know, so it's like this. When you have a problem, you put that problem right in front of you, right? And that's all you see, right? Because it's like right here. It's magnified. But take a few steps back from that problem and look at your entire life in a big picture sort of way. 
you are not, endometriosis cannot overtake you. You need to overtake endometriosis, right? So just look at your life in a big picture way and say, you know what, maybe I didn't get to do that because of this, but look at all, all the other things you will get to do. So, you know, choose yourself and, you know, be happy, live life. Just don't let it overtake you. Thank you so much. So thank you to all of the panelists. We're going to take some time now for questions and answers from people in the audience. Um, so my name is Ida Thanuka. I'm uh, actually an OBGYN resident at SUNY Downstate. A few of us came here. Um, and I guess my question, we kind of talked about how a lot of the, like in the, in the movie, we see a lot of, you know, how many ER visits happen, how many interactions there are with providers that aren't necessarily in a setting where they're able to give that definitive care, right? And so I was really interested in hearing, you know, um, you talk about acute, like treatments that you can give for acute endo flares. And I guess I would be interested in hearing kind of across the board, what are ways that when, and as a patient or as a provider, what are ways that when you interact with like the ER setting or in, in the setting of an acute endo flare, when you're interacting um, when you're having those acute episodes, what are ways that are, we could better serve um, people with endometriosis in those situations? Thank you. So that is probably one of the hardest things, and it's like it happens all the time. And the hardest thing for me also is having my my patients who coming back to the ER, you know, they've they've had either they've had surgery or they're going to have surgery. Or you know, you can have all these different types of patients. What do you do? Like I mentioned before, everyone is a little bit different. It's so hard to sort of give them that instant relief. I want to give them, I try not, and I try to avoid narcotics as much as possible. Um, you know, obviously NSAID use would be like my first approach. I want to see what they've also been doing already. What have they tried, what they failed. Most times, unfortunately, you, when you go see the patient with pain in the emergency room is they've already been loaded up with either morphine or Toradol and they're so numb and then you don't know what to, oh, they look fine. And then you send them home and then, Two hours later, you get a call back or they come back to the emergency room. My biggest thing is in terms of, okay, well then, where are they in terms of their treatment? You know, have they already been diagnosed? Yes or not? One of the biggest things that, and we're looking at this from the emergency room perspective is, you know, looking at patients' reproductive age coming through the emergency room, they have this diagnosis and they're just either sent to a primary care physician or they're not even sent to a joint office. So that's one thing is that they're not being directed to the right place. But then for you guys, when you're going to be consulted down and the ER is saying, I can't send her home, you have to admit her. And we get pain management on board and we admit the patient, we do imaging. I mean, that's what usually ends up happening. And it's it's very frustrating because you know there is so many different things that we can do to try to help the patient. We want to help them instantly, right? Do you want to give them that instant feedback to say, okay, this is what we're going to do to treat you? But unfortunately, it then takes time. We say, okay, we'll do all the imaging, all the tests, and like everything comes back normal. So what's the next thing to do is probably they end up needing to have a diagnostic laparoscopy. But you also need to make sure that before you do surgery as well, you've involved any other surgeon, whether, you know, there's some people who can do everything. But like for myself, I'm not going to do a bowel resection on a patient. I'm not going to do involving anything in the thoracic cavity, right? you need to involve other providers. You get pain management on board, and you just have you know close follow-up with the patient. And then you have to realize, okay, well then if we don't have an endometriosis specialist, 
for anyone who deals with this, then know where to send the patient. You know, that's what they want to know. At least, okay, if you're just going to put a bandaid, you know, a bandaid on it, just help me just for the night, at least send me in the right direction. So for you guys in residency, you know, I don't know if there is anyone who's, you know, specifically you will have sent to afterwards in terms of the, you know, GYN office, but we have, you know, myself and like two other surgeons who's, you know, will be dedicated to endometriosis that the patient will get a follow-up within a week. And then we sort of make a plan of care in terms of whether or not surgery is needed. But it, it is a very difficult and frustrating process. You know, seeing that, the amount of ER visits that the patients have to go through, but it always ends up being, you know, they're not directed in the right place. That's why most hospitals now have patient navigators, uh, which helps direct patients to go to the right places. If it's not at that institution, you know, there's some, some hospitals here that don't have a OB-GYN residency, and uh, they are just, they have contact information, they'll follow up in our office. Like for my office specifically, they know any ER patient, whether it's our hospital or at another outside institution, we'll see usually within a week or two weeks. We take everything. Yeah. 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 I mean, there, there are certain insurances that I'll say, like NYP, for instance, because that's where I work, NYP Methodist. I think there's like Health Plus that we don't accept. You know, but it's all the health first we do see. And if they're straight Medicaid, we do see as well, Medicaid, Medicare, um, and obviously all the commercials one. But, you know, anybody who goes to emergency room, they're going to be seen no matter what insurance type. And we've had cases where patients were, at, you know, were seen in the emergency room. Either they have no insurance as well. You're still, you're still taking care of them, right? And if they need to have surgery at that time, we're doing surgery on them as well. That's a great question. If you want to take the edge off, lidocaine, 60 milligrams, a gram of mag, IV, slow push. <laughs> <laughs> then you can have a conversation, right? Um, I can say um, one of the tools that we teach, I already mentioned the vagal toning exercises. Obviously, um, this is from a physical therapy standpoint. I don't work in a hospital. I don't work in the ER. But um, patients knowing how to use visual cues to breathe, um, to get that sympathetic nervous system that we spoke about downregulated. The vagal toning exercises are really helpful for any kind of pain, uh, specifically pelvic pain, actually. It's tremendously helpful. So, yeah. Next question. Yeah. Hi. Um, I'm Marlene. I'm a, also a pelvic health occupational therapist. Um, thank you for having this event. I have many, many clients with endo and do a lot of sort of manual work, nervous system regulation, but I felt like the film didn't really highlight anything about, you know, sort of alternative first step approaches other than surgery, right, or pain management. Um, I just wanted to sort of get your take as surgeons. Is that something that you sort of recommend as like an early line of defense um, before surgery or sort of trying, you know, acupuncture, um, craniosacral therapy, those sorts of things. Is that something that you advocate for before having any surgery? Um, in my practice, uh, endometriosis need to be really individualized. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to interview my patient, their lifestyle, their diet, and uh, also stress reduction is so important. Mm -hmm. And uh, endometriosis and the stress is also strongly connected. So it is very important to uh, reduce your stress level 
And also, I want to talk about all of what kind of diet patient is taking. It needs to be anti-inflammatory diet. And uh, I was posting my Instagram uh, <laughs> recently, uh, like some research paper studies showing like green tea is really good for uh, endometriosis patient. Even though green tea have been uh, some caffeine, but the matcha green tea have so, uh, so much anti-inflammatory effect and anti-cancer, anti-endometriosis, and uh, anti-aging, so you become younger, <laughs> and good for your skin, and uh, what else? <laughs> but it's pretty much like uh, you can hit the five bird with one stone. So, so I, I take a look at the big picture of how patient is living, how patient's lifestyle. Then that, that is all important uh, background need to be addressed before the surgery and also after the surgery. But I don't want to go around the bush. Most important factor is you need to hit the target. You need to hit the exact location of endometriosis and you need to remove whatever the irritation, inflammation it is causing. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, whatever the inflammation, irritation causing inside your body. So you really need to extinguish the fire from inside your body. Then your diet, your lifestyle change, everything else will work together, you know, more like a synergistically. So that is kind of my experience. Thank you. And I, I'm sorry, I have to say that the psychological component of all of this was kind of left out of the movie too. So like pain psychologists, shout out to Dr. Barbieri, play a huge role in this, not, not just as you're going through the journey, but even at the end of it. Like if you've been through it and you've had excision and, and you've healed and you've kind of gotten to a point where you can get back to the life you thought you might have, like there's a whole other process that has to occur there. And pain psychology is not just like you think of normal psychology where you're talking through things. They, they actually have tools that will functionally help you regulate your nervous system and adjust and cope and strategize your care. And they, they really serve a very important role. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I just want to say as a, as a patient, I absolutely agree 100% with what both doctors just said. I only really had relief after they got to the root of the problem, like, a hundred ultrasounds couldn't see anything, all the ablations, all the birth controls, all these things just did not really work. And then to what this doctor just said, like the PTSD is definitely real. Like watching the film, I just told you I don't have a uterus. I was like, wait a minute, my stomach hurts. Like, you know, like it's just, it's real that PTSD and remembering that muscle memory of the pain, you know, that does need to be dealt with. Thank you. Um, I wanted to add to what Dr. Seferman was saying about mental health being a really important part of the journey for wellness for anyone who has endometriosis, because as Nikueva mentioned, it affects your personal life. It affects your social life, your relationships. We didn't talk at all about sex, but pain with sex is really common for people with endometriosis. So being able to find a mental health provider who specializes in pain, and then also potentially the same provider, maybe someone else who's a sex therapist, um, is really important so that you can try to maintain uh, your, your sex life, your sexual identity, and just a quality of life in general. Hi, um, I'm Brianna. I'm an endometriosis patient, and shout out to my support group who <laughs> came here tonight. Um, 
has really been a huge help. But I just wanted to ask about like coordinating care because you're talking about all these different things you can do and all these different people who need to be involved. And the challenge for me has always been that I'm the one figuring out all of that. And, you know, I went to the ER after I had endosurgery and saying I like giving my diagnosis was worse because then they were like, oh, that's why you're in pain. It's, it's normal for someone with your disease, have a morphine, go home. And I was, you know, screaming in pain, vomiting. Um, and it turned out I had hernia. Um, and they thought my hernia surgeon thought it was my round ligament pressing against the hernia during my period. Um, so I ended up having a more excision surgery and a hernia surgery. But the only reason I knew to do that is because I went, I attended a virtual panel where the hernia surgeon talked about undiagnosed hernias and what they felt like. And, um, so it's like, if you don't have the time or the resources or the, the awareness to go to panels and teach yourself what to pursue. And I guess, you know, p- part of my question too, is just that, um, this is seen, you know, has long been seen as a gynecological disorder. Um, but obviously there's so much else involved and there's sort of this push maybe to see it more as an immune disorder, um, with, with, you know, gynecological involvement. So like who is, you know, as my gynecologist calls it, who's your quarterback? Who's the person saying, you know, if you go to an immunologist, they don't know anything about this. So who's the person who's saying like, have you explored this aspect of treatment or, or can we create that person? (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, there, there does exist endometriosis centers. So I know NYU has one, Cornell has one, and they, they say that because they have the coordination of the surgeon, the nutritionist, physical therapy. I mean, our institution as well, we don't have the designation of an endometriosis center, but we involve all these people together for you. And it's, it is difficult to coordinate everything, right? And what's the most important thing? What's the hardest thing? It's time. You know, it's so much, you know, we need so much time to spend with a patient, number one, to sit down, take proper history, take a proper physical exam, which and alone sometimes can take an hour or two hours from that. And then it's coordination of care between all these services, which, which we do. Um, could there be improvements? Of course. And the fact that there's such limited spaces or places throughout the city is what makes it so difficult. But, you know, also what I like hearing from the movie and one of the hardest things is also is trust, right? The trust that you develop with that physician or that provider, because maybe you've already, this is now your sixth or seventh provider that you've gone to. And okay, is this person really telling me the truth? Do I, can I believe them? Are they going to answer my phone calls or get back to me? What happens if I have pain? I mean, there's so much involved with that. And it is very difficult to have that one person to coordinate every, coordinate everything. And it usually ends up being the patient, right? Yeah. Um, and so it, it's, again, it is so hard to do this. Um, and I feel for all my patients, the fact that they have to go through this over and over, we try as much as we can. But it is, I think, a lot to do with the patient, believing that the doctor can help them, and, you know, and trusting them, and then making sure that the other providers that are involved are all working together with the same objective. It's either like improving quality of life, you know, maintaining fertility, um, and obviously having you know less ER visits, less phone calls. Yeah. But it's it's a it's a huge challenge. I think there's some luck involved too, unfortunately, because mm-hmm. I mean, doctors are like bakers or like mechanics. Like, you know, we all might make chocolate cake, but we make it a little differently. 
And some of us might not use hazelnuts in our chocolate cake, and you might need a hazelnut. And and so it's really just the like if, if you found a doc who could identify that, that's that's fantastic. And if you can find a doc who can, you know, sort of understand wholly what's going on with you and help you outsource to the different providers for each specific like divide and conquer kind of approach, that's that's what I think is most helpful. And it can be a physical therapist. It can be your primary care, although I haven't seen that. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. It, it could be. I'm, I'm open to that possibility. I mean, I end up doing this for a lot of my patients. I'm sure you guys end up doing this for a lot of your patients. Uh, it's just, yeah. I would say, too, that doctors respond to data, right? So if you go to one doctor and you get one thing, take your records with you to the next doctor. They respond to that. Thank you. Hi, I'm Maddie. Um, thank you for this event. This has been really informative. Um, I have a little bit more of a tactical question. So one of the most shocking stats I thought on during the video was it takes, you know, six to 10 years on average to diagnose properly a patient. Um, if you're to diagnose someone, you know, within months of, of the initial pain, um, is that, I understand that's better because like being diagnosed earlier, the mental toll etc. is is way better for a patient experience. But is it that stage one diagnosing you're catching at stage one and excision or ablation surgery actually works better at that point? Is it more covered by insurance? Is it like having the earlier diagnosis, what does that do for patient experience and and actually, you know, potentially finding a cure or so with the different stages of disease, for instance, stage one disease could have the most horrific pain, debilitating, unable to go out, you know, versus, and you can have stage four disease where you also have pain, where mm -hmm. you can have none at all. So the, the staging system is really just telling us where is the endometriosis. Mm -hmm. That's number one. Now, obviously, if it's stage one disease that we're identifying, it's easier to excise versus stage four, which may involve potentially losing an ovary, a floping tube, a bowel resection, something else that's going on at the same time. And that, that what they mentioned about ablation versus excision, I mean, the codes that the surgeons use for it, it's the exact same thing. And it's not like, I don't know why they said like, oh, these are only ablation surgeons or only excision surgeons. I mean, ultimately, if you want to treat endometriosis, you have to excise it. Mm -hmm. You may be ablating so it. If on, might, you know, if it's close to well your fallopian tube or something like that. But uh, majority of times, it's all excision. You want to cut it out. So, it, like the insurance type it's in regards to excision versus ablation, I, I don't know how that is, but it's, you know, you just have to excise it. And that's the same code. We still do it. Yeah. yeah if, if, I, if I might pipe in as the gastroenterologist, uh, the, uh, the uh, issue with, uh, you know, it, it, if, from my perspective, having seen patients coming with various and different type of surgeries, uh, I, I don't even understand why anyone is doing ablation still, and that the societies have not uh, taken a stand against it. The, the worst adhesions, postoperative adhesions I've ever seen were with women who've had ablation. Uh, small bowel obstruction, uh, all sorts of horrific uh, sequelae of, 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 of it. Uh, it should it should be forbidden to be honest. It's really kind of criminal that anyone in this day and age still does ablation is still operating. That's my my two cents.
Yeah, I, I agree. Um, ablation surgery, actually, you hit the endometriosis by the laser beam. What's happening is it's going to be splash. So it's going to be creating a many tiny particle by the hitting by the laser beam or burning method. And the tiny particle splash up in the air, and it's going to be implanting in surrounding area. So instead of helping the patient, patient eventually spread more endometriosis in the end. Thank, Thank you. you. Yeah. Thank you. Hi. Um, I have another question. Sorry. Um, I just, just was really interested in what you guys were talking about in terms of like, the psychological components of pain and the kind of relationship between that, that mind-body relationship of pain. And I think one thing that's really hard with chronic pain especially, um, and as we talked about with the kind of having to go through multiple providers, having to, you know, often being misdiagnosed, having pain mismanaged, is that when you sit down to have that conversation about, you know, well, let's talk about managing pain in a multimodal way. Let's talk about addressing both the mental and, like, physical, um, the, the mental and physical ways that we can address your pain. How, I guess I would love to hear more about how you have that conversation in a way that doesn't sound like, oh, this pain is in your head. Right, because that's not the goal, but a lot of people, you know, have heard that before, and that's not something you want to perpetuate either. So, kind of walking that line of saying we want to address this holistically, but we also want to make it clear that it's not to invalidate your pain. Thank you. Um, I guess I'll start with this one. So, at our practice, we educate patients about the biopsychosocial model. And the fact that a pain experience is influenced by those three aspects, right? So people who have experienced um, emotional traumas, sexual traumas, their pain is real. So those three components affect the pain and can create the painful experience. So I often start off with just educating people about what creates pain? What is pain? And then, you know, it in the first meeting with someone, you're really just developing a relationship. So developing that trust that we spoke about first is, is super important. Um, in our practice, we use different outcome measures. I'm forgetting the name of the specific one, but there's one for central sensitization that we use that has certain prompts and asks specific questions and specific ways and we can then tally it up and eventually maybe not in that same session but talk about you know okay so your score is coming up like this I really recommend and based on the research that you find a therapist a psychotherapist who deals with pain and can do cognitive behavioral therapy that's been really helpful and helping to shift the thoughts and um, the dialogue that's going on that you're having internally around your painful experience. So it's, um, it's a process. Everything we're talking about tonight is very complex. So, um, I think as a provider, um, knowing and being able to read the patient and know what the patient is ready to receive, what information they're ready to receive is really important. And I think that just comes with, um, holding space for your patients and, and becoming more experienced with it. So that's what I wanted to add. 
Just for me, really quickly, um, I think what worked for me, and just from a very layperson standpoint, um, I had to change my relationship with pain. It like went from like very toxic to it's complicated to now pain is my friend that, you know, I just see every couple of years or, you know, however the case might be. But I use pain as a communication method, like, okay, thank you for letting me know that something's going on. Now I know I need to address something instead of like, oh my God, here you are again. Like, and just kind of going down this rabbit hole with emotions that pain can bring and the anxieties, like, okay. My body is still working because it is communicating to me that something is wrong. That's a blessing. Yeah, because sometimes there are things like, you know, cancers and all kinds of things that can grow inside of you and you have no idea. But when you feel the pain, it's a communication. It's telling you, okay, something's happening. You need to take care of it. So it is a blessing. I think the first step is just showing your direct interest and figuring out what's going on with them. And when they see how much you care, how much you're taking them seriously, how much you're working concretely to go after those specific issues, that, that goes a long way. And then you start to talk about how, you know, you might have been crazy before, I don't know, but this will make you crazy, right? <laughs> and you, you just can't have this pain. You can't live like this. You can't not sleep for days on end because of this. You can't vomit 26 hours straight and not go a little crazy. Like, let's be honest, because this sucks. There's that, there's the in the moment, but then there's also like, what about your hopes and dreams? Like you wanted to have a family, you wanted to have children. Now that might be out the window. You don't know. There's a lot of uncertainty. You might need a surgery that's going to cost you 40 grand. And you just had one last year that was 40 grand, right? Like how many layers to this are there? And, you know, just like letting them know that you, you, you're not there so you don't fully get it, but you kind of get that it's a lot. And then sort of talking through that there, there is a process to digesting all of this. There is a, a process of having to deal with it some way and that you're not alone. I, I can help with these very concrete pain things, right? But I can also connect you with a great pain psychologist who can help you strategize on coordinating your care because they're really good with helping you make flow charts and if then things, right? And not just talking about how bad things are, but actually functionally helping you ground yourself to make the decisions that you need to make to make the best decisions for yourself, but then also the tools for self-regulation and biofeedback and all these other things. So they know that you kind of get it and you're there to help them as best as you can. Thank you. So I think we're just going to do one last question. We will um, hang around to answer other questions, but we'll have one last question now. Hi, everyone. Um, I am an endo survivor, stage four, two surgeries in the past 20 months. And thank you. <laughs> it's been really hard. Um, and I think something that's not talked about a lot is how s surgery is a trauma to the body. And I'm so grateful that I got surgery. But I guess I'm curious about the future of endometriosis care and the ways that the medical community will seek to address the root cause of the disease and find interventions that can forego the need for surgery what? Like monoclonal antibodies. <laughs> I think we all, anybody here who suffers with endo wants to hear what we have to look forward to so we don't have to have a repeated surgery in five years. Dr. Lewis. Now new research with immunotherapy, looking at specific biomarkers to help identify it earlier. But I think that's, that's one thing is identifying it earlier. Um, I think delayed diagnosis is what leads to getting worse amount of adhesion, scar tissue, infertility. Um, so there's the education part from, you know, from 
medical school and residency training, there's that part. And then let's not forget also that research with medicine doesn't take a year like they did with the COVID vaccine. It takes decades. Um, and unfortunately, like we're trying to do this as quickly as possible. And I know there's uh, working at MIT and Brigham and Women's at Harvard, but it will take time and Yale University as well. Um, so looking specifically at the cells that line the uterus and seeing if there are certain biomarkers that we can help identify. Will there be a vaccine one day that can help stop this? Will there be something or something that we can have injectable that can help decrease our immune response to this? I think that's probably where we're going. Um, but for now, it's still early identification, excision, and then from there, decreasing the amount of inflammation, the estrogen levels in your body to help deal with this vicious cycle that keeps on propagating it. Uh, just one comment. Um, I think it's very important to understand endometriosis is not endometrial tissue. It's totally different. Not totally, but it's very similar. I'm sorry, totally is an overstatement. But it's, it's different. Endometriosis can produce its own estrogen. So you do not need your ovary. Endo can locally produce its own estrogen, and they can proliferate, they can invade, they can destroy. So I look at endometriosis more like a cancer cell. It's like a benign cancer cell. And uh, it's really instant, uh, constantly causing uh, inflammation, irritation, and uh, causing a uh, scar tissue adhesion inside. So that, that's the reason why sooner we detect this disease. We, we don't want to waste our time. We need to find this disease at stage one, stage two. Do not wait until stage three or four. And uh, it is now, that, I, that, again. I'm, I, I'm the gastroenterologist. If I may, just pipe in again. The uh, I have to really uh, echo that comment. That's a really uh, insightful one in terms of it being similar to cancer cells. I have had more than a few cases where uh, women had presented with uh, rectal bleeding, uh, young women, and who were then you know. All, all the world, the, the lesion within the lumen of the colon appeared to be uh, a cancer, and it wasn't. It had the, the, the endometrioma on the lumen of the bowel had eroded into the lumen of the inside the lumen of the bowel, and on all appearance, it looked like a, like a, a, a colonic neoplasm. It really does behave like a, a neoplastic process, and it's kind of it, it, the I think that. The, that the comment about it behaves like a cancer is something that is really not fully appreciated by a lot of uh, a lot of docs and the understanding of its its migratory nature and its its invasive nature is really kind of frightening actually when you see it behave in the in the rare instances when it does i also want to also comment about the use of nsaids you got to be very careful with the use of nsaids just like with opioids you don't want people to to become dependent NSAIDs alone are dangerous on, on their own uh, for a variety of different reasons. Uh, uh, I've had more than a few women with GI bleeds who have been dependent upon long-term NSAIDs to control the pain. It isn't an answer, the NSAIDs, just like uh, opioids are not an answer. And there, there are other, other modalities to reduce that. The, the threshold for, for no, the nociception of pain have to be really uh, utilized. Just, just one more comment. Um, this yesterday, no, I'm sorry, last week, um, I operated on the, my youngest patient. She's 11 years old. So she had a pain since nine years. 
nine, so two years of pain. She went to so many doctors, so many emergency room visits. Every, every doctor said no endometriosis. And that, uh, they, they don't want to even entertain. But the, what, what I find out, um, she had a stage three endo. And it's all proven by the pathology. So my take home message from this case is endo can start very young age. We shouldn't ignore because we were too young. We need to start to treat our teenager. We need to start to recognize our pediatrics patient. And we need to listen to very carefully their complaint. Because everything's here. It's in, in their head. And so uh, I, was, I was shocked. And but also at the same time, I learned the lesson and will start very early age. Thank you. So thank you, Dr. Lewis. Thank you, Dr. Kaniyama, Dr. Siefman, Nakueva. All right. Thank you all so much for coming out tonight. I hope it was informative. <laughs>